glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Stand with me now, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You'll notice the question mark. I've been saying this much lately. Satan loves to put a question mark where God puts a period. He loves to ask questions and get you doubting and confused. Verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree, whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman... Whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thee eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, here's the promise referred to earlier, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, And between thy seed and her seed, you can know when you read those two words, her seed, that is prophetic reference to Jesus Christ, the the son of the born of the Virgin Mary, the seed of the woman. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, speaking of the seed of the woman, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Let me just pause for a moment. I love this verse in my Bible. In the margin, I have a picture of a cross because it's reference to what Jesus did on the cross. If you put notes in your Bible, you might want to write down Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, where Jesus destroyed him that has the power of death, that is Satan. Today, Jesus is bruised in the heel. He was wounded, but he's living. Satan's work has been defeated once and for all. It makes me excited. Verse 16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to do things just a little different this morning. I'm going to give you a number of words that help us bring bring us to the message in verse 21. So I'm going to take a little time for introduction even give you, if you take notes, some outlining. It might help us have the introduction in our minds. We have to look at this this way so we have verse 21 in its proper context. Many of you here today, you understand the truth that's going to be preached. I'm preaching nothing new today, uh, but the same wonderful good old story all over again, and that is what God has done for us in giving us salvation. Let me just say this before we get into the heart of this message, and I want us to enter it with this, this perspective. I don't find anywhere in my Bible that eternal life is referred to as a reward. There are crowns to be won for service to God, but that's for people who've already been given eternal life. God refers to eternal life as a gift. 
as a gift. This is why the old rugged cross has attached to it shame and reproach. Because we who trust in what was done on the cross realize that we are saved and in God's family and on our way to heaven, not because we are deserving of that, but because God in grace and mercy has given us eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You and I both know a wage is something you earn by what you do. The wages of sin is death. But, and here's the contrasting part, the gift of God, gift in contrast with wage, gift is something you receive unmerited from a benefactor. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the Holy Spirit of God took uh, the time to give us at least at least those two verses. Romans 5, I think four or five times says that it is a free gift. Not only a gift, but because God knows how we operate, He has to clarify it's a free gift. How many have ever been offered a gift like this? We will give you this free promotional flashlight when you spend 1995. Well, that's not free, right? It may be something you weren't planning on getting ahead of time, but that's not free. Many people think of pardon for our sins, eternal life, the same way. Once you've met certain conditions of good works, now eternal life kicks in. There's so many variations from the truth. The best way... To recognize those and reject those is let's look right into what God says. And here's what encourages me. I find the gospel of Jesus Christ both by picture and type throughout my entire Bible. With God's help, if he'll allow, over the next few months, I want to take time to preach the gospel from the Old Testament. We can preach the gospel right here in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Abel uh, offered God a lamb, meaning he recognized what God did right here and realized that it took a substitute an innocent substitute to take his place for him to be righteous and reconciled to God. And we find that throughout. Noah, by faith, built an ark and by faith entered that ark at God's invitation and was shielded from the flood. And we can go on and on and on of the pictures and types of what one day Jesus, the Son of God, would come to earth and do so that we can understand if we have honest hearts and minds that God's plan of salvation has always been the same plan. Whether it was in the Old Testament, people by faith were waiting and anticipating what God would do in the future, or at the time of Christ and people were able to see Him and handle Him and know this is the Son of God, or we who look back at what God has already done by faith. God's salvation has been always by faith in Him. And we'll see that again today. So let me give you some thoughts and some words to, to by way of introduction. I want to outline the chapter all the way down to verse 21. So I'm going to give you some words that we see concerning Adam and Eve that bring us to our verse in verse 21. In the first few verses of Genesis 3, so if you start in verse 1, we won't read them again. Verses 1 through 8, we find the rebellion of Adam and Eve. We use that word because Eve, yes, dis- disobeyed, deceit, was deceived by the, by the devil. We know Adam, though, rebelled against God. Eve was deceived. The Bible makes that point both Old and New Testament. By the serpent, it was still sin. It was still disobedience. How many of us understand Adam knew when he ate that fruit exactly what he was doing, that he was willingly and willfully disobeying God, and he did it anyway. What Adam did in eating that fruit is he joined Satan in rebellion against God. See, what rebellion is, is the rejection of God's authority over my life. Lucifer, Satan, the devil, was was created by God, and you can read the account in Isaiah uh, chapter 14 of how he said, I will be as the most high God. What Lucifer decided is, I'm going to take God's place. I'll tell him what to do. I will revolt and rebel against him. When we find here in the garden, Satan taking on that form of a serpent as a serpent entices Eve to do what? Disobey God. God had said, I, I, how would you like to live a life where you only have one rule? One rule. Wouldn't that be lovely? The only rule is don't eat of that tree. That's it. And again, there are so many messages that can be preached from how the devil operates to seduce us to discontentment with God's will for our lives. I don't want to take time to to preach that this morning. What I want you to see in verses 1 through 8, that Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. They knew what God expected. They knew what God said. They even knew the warning of what would happen if they disobeyed. 
and yet Eve seduced into disobedience. Adam willingly, knowingly disobeyed God. This is what constitutes sin. We call this man's original sin, man's first sin, and that was direct disobedience to the, to the word of God to the extent that it brought the consequences of sin, of sin that God warned. And so the rebellion, and with that rebellion came a number of things. But one of the things that shines in this chapter that comes forth is the reproach that's attached to sin. Prior to Adam and Eve disobeying God, God would come and commune with them. The Bible said they could hear his voice in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. They were hearing and communing with God like we do, by hearing. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. They would hear God speak and know he was coming. There was absolutely no animosity between Adam, Eve, and God until they disobeyed. May I say this? There's a tremendous amount of animosity today in the world against God. Atheism is animosity against God. Agnosticism is animosity against God. Evolutionism is animosity against God. It's saying, I have a problem with the God that's revealed in the Bible. I have a problem with the God that's revealed in the heavens. I have a problem with the God that's revealed in my conscience. False religion of all sorts is expression of animosity. What it's acknowledging is man and God have a problem. That's what, look, that's what man's religion is. It is the expression and the acknowledgement there's something wrong between the creator and the creation. It's called enmity. I know that I've done something that displeases him, but I want to act like I don't know it or that I didn't do it. I know he is displeased with me, meaning this, the enmity means broken fellowship. God has reason to be upset with me, and he and I both know it. May I say with this, sin is what brings shame and guilt into the world. The lost world today, the unbelieving world today, would say guilt is created by religion. Can I flip that around? False religion is created by guilt. Please ponder what I just said. Guilt is not the brainchild of religion. Religion is man's response to his guilt. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve got religious in a hurry, meaning they started doing things to try to remedy what they had done wrong. That's man's false religion. And so then we find there was reproach because what happened is the Bible says in verse 7, after their rebellion came the reproach and the eyes of them both were opened. Satan told a half-truth. He said, if you eat, your eyes will be open. I love pointing this out. Prior, prior to Satan deceiving them and then believing him over God, what was, what did Adam and Eve know? All they knew was good. That's all. The Bible says God on the first day of creation saw, he made light and saw that it was good. All the way through the sixth day when he made Adam and Eve, and he said, and he saw that it was good. And so they're living in the Garden of Eden, a, play, a utopia created for them by God, and everything is good. And then, what Satan says is, but if you'll do what I say, you'll have the knowledge of both good and evil. And they did. You know when you know evil? You know what? For every little child, especially if that child is born into a loving home of any sort, all they know is good for a while. But then when they start sinning, they start knowing evil. One day, they consciously do something they know they weren't supposed to, and instead of anticipating, oh, mom or dad's going to come talk to me, they think, ooh, I hope mom and dad don't come talk to me. You with me? You see, sin brought evil into the world. God did not create man to know evil. That was his adversary's brainchild. Uh, God created man upright, but man has sought out many inventions, the Bible says. And so what we have is the rebellion, verses 1 through 8, in that, those same verses, verses 7 uh, and down, you find the reproach that came with that rebellion, meaning this, their conscience was awakened to the fact they had done something that was disapproving to God, displeasing to God, and had brought his disapproval upon them. And so there's reproach. They saw that they were naked. The nakedness there is a symbol in a, in a picture of the fact their conscience had been awakened and they knew now shame and guilt. Throughout Scripture and even in our culture today, though less than ever before, nakedness is equated with shame, embarrassment and shame. And so then, so it was here. They were ashamed. And the Bible says in verse 7, And the eyes of them both were open." And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. That brings us to their religion. At this point, they realize we've done something wrong. We don't want God to see us like this. 
So let's do this. Let's cover our shame. Proverbs, I believe it's 8, verse 13, 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Verse 7 is key for our message in verse 21. So I don't want you to miss this. Adam and Eve said, we know we've done wrong. We are ashamed of what we've done. We don't want God to see us like this. So the Bible says they made themselves. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. You know what it did? They worked. They said, we're in a condition that we know God is not pleased with. They were able to see themselves differently than ever they had before, and there was shame and embarrassment. And out of that guilt, they responded and said, let's go to the fig tree, get some fig leaves, sew them together, and try to cover ourselves wherein we are ashamed. And so then, that's their religion. That's their endeavor to cover what made them ashamed. Number four, we find their reproof. When God comes into the garden, verse 8, said, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and Adam and Eve, and Adam and his wife did what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Again, we must, we must belabor this for just a little bit. If they have covered their sin, why should they hide? If they have successfully concealed what they did wrong, if they have successfully satisfied their conscience. See, God made man with a conscience. And if in their conscience they say, we did wrong, but now what we, the, we worked, we've worked to cover our shame, we did good works, we sewed fig leaves together and have covered our shame, then don't hide. Stand unashamed before God and know that he'll be pleased with you. Do you know what their fig leaves were? Nothing more than a confession. We know in our conscience we're not right. And I'll say this. Man's endeavor to make himself better by good works is nothing more than an admission, I'm not good enough. Is it not? Man's endeavor to... By the way, you know what distinguishes false religion? All false religion says you must do X, Y, and Z to make yourself righteous. All false religion. You must do X, Y, and Z. It's just they fill in different X, Y's, and Z's. Muhammadism says you must recognize the prophet Muhammad and that there's only one God and one Allah. That is he and his one true prophet Muhammad. That's, and then they have a lot of other X, Y's, and Z's to fill in behind that. You must fast this many times a, uh, a year and you must pray this many times a day and you must do it this way and in this place. And if you don't, man, you're in trouble. Every false religion is generated, motivated, and promoted by fear. You know you're not good enough for a holy God, so do a little more and you might be. I'm preaching truth this morning. God's religion is not you and I sowing fig leaves together and then hiding from God. Did their fig leaves remove their fear of God? I don't mean fear in a good way. I mean terror. They're afraid they're going to get caught. It didn't do it. I'm going to tell you something. There's hosts and hosts of people today trying their best to appease their conscience that they have made themselves in such a way that God will no longer be displeased with them. Perhaps if I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, and yet they're still hiding from God. That tells you it's not satisfying the conscience. There's not a, a contentment that I'm, I am now reconciled. No, even after sewing themselves aprons of fig leaves, they still are hiding from God. Meaning, in their conscience, they knew that did not sufficiently make us acceptable to God. So they hid from God. Many follow this same approach today. I've watched, and you hear testimonies of people, they try church for a little while, trying to do something that maybe is good uh, to make themselves acceptable and approved to God. And then they say, you know what? You can't do that. I want nothing to do with God. I don't want to read a Bible. I don't want to hear preaching. I don't want to be around Christians. I don't want to go to church. Maybe I can just be in such a way that I don't have to think about God and I can just hide from Him. And they become secular. <laughs> it's what our whole nation's trying to do. If we don't talk about the Bible, we don't allow it in our schools, we don't allow it in places of public institutions, if we can suppress the preaching of it, we'll just hide from God and He won't know what a wicked nation we are. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Behold the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, verse 3. And so Adam and Eve tried hiding from God. And then their religion continues. It starts with good works. It continues with hiding from God. When God finds them, God begins to confront them. By the way, if their fig leaves had been accepting and it had been appropriate, God would not have mentioned their sin. 
What, man, let me put it this way. You know how, you know what Adam and Eve were trying to do? They were trying to get God to treat them as if they had not sinned. And don't miss what I'm saying to you this morning. They wanted God to behave toward them as if they had done nothing wrong. If God did that, what would God be? He'd be unjust. That is correct. If God pretended they didn't do wrong when he knew they had. By the way, when he said, Adam, where are you? It wasn't because God didn't know. It's because God, Adam needed to admit, I'm hiding from you. You may be in this room this morning and God may have been saying to you, where are you? Where are you? He knows where you are. He needs you to know where you are. Are you fleeing to him or running from him? You say, I'm in church this morning. Praise God for it. But may I say this, God, and this is where we misunderstand what it's like when God begins to deal with our lives. One of the most uncomfortable places in your life can be when God begins to speak to you. Please don't lose me here this morning. This is why you can be careful looking for a church where you'll feel comfortable. I don't think Adam and Eve were very comfortable when they heard God saying, Adam! You know what? When we're under the voice of God, truth will always be at the forefront. God's voice always and only speaks according to the truth. God could have. I've done this as a parent. How many of you have ever, because you don't want, you don't want your life disturbed and having to discipline or correct, you know your child done something wrong, but you think, if I pretend that they didn't, life can go on easily. Now, that's a wrong and bad thing to do as a parent. But I'd say every parent has been guilty of it. I know they did wrong, but let's just pretend they didn't. You know what what we're doing to that child? The Bible says a father that won't correct his son hates him. He hates him. So God comes into the garden, and this brings us into the reproof. So we've seen their rebellion, their reproach, their religion. Now they're reproved. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of, of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Why didn't God just leave him alone? He knew where he was. Because God wanted to reconcile him. Something had been lost. Fellowship was broken. Verse 10, he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. As you read this, it's almost like it's an interrogation. Because God says next, and he said, not with unkindness, but God's not going to leave it alone until we get to the root of this. And he said, who told thee that thou wast naked? How did you know that? Hast thou eaten of the tree where have I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Now Now the Lord is exactly, by the way, what was Adam's sin? He had eaten of the tree that God told him not to eat of. Isn't it amazing how clear the word of God can get in our conscience? How very pointed and specific someone that says, you know, I think I'm okay. I think I'm a good person. I, I, I don't know why God would send me to hell when I die. I don't, I don't know why I wouldn't be welcome in heaven. I'm, a, I'm kind to of my neighbor. I try to be good to my wife or my husband. I try to be a good parent. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden, it's as though the Spirit of God says, have you ever stolen anything? Hadn't thought about that in 20 years. You with me? Have you ever blatantly, intentionally, or even unintentionally been a liar? Isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit of God brings us to the exact moment where we intentionally, willingly, and consciously disobeyed Him? See, the Spirit of God is in the world to reprove of... What's the first thing He reproves us of? Which means to fully convince of the truth. Sin. We are notorious for wanting to act like we've never sinned when we have. It starts when we're this big. This big. We do something wrong and we want to be treated as though we've never sinned when we did. God is not going to treat Adam as though he didn't transgress when Adam disobeyed. You see, reconciliation always requires acknowledgement of transgression. Always. Forgiveness is not acting like transgression didn't happen. It's making a way for that transgression to be forgiven and being willing to offer that based upon repentance, right? So what happens is God begins to confront them with what they've done. Many today have a a view, and this is being promoted by those who don't know God. There are people who don't know God. They are promoting a view of God that the love of God will never confront you with what you've done wrong against Him. When the fact is the opposite is true. 
The love of God forces us to acknowledge the reason there's enmity between me and you, God, is because I'm the one that did wrong. And so we see the reproof of God beginning in the garden saying, did you do it? I told you one rule. Did you break that one rule? Did you eat that fruit? And Adam's answer is, yes, Lord, I disobeyed. I'm so sorry. No. It was her. Friend, if you and I can't read Genesis 3 and say, Adam is most certainly in my family tree, then we got our head buried. There's not a person here that has not walked through this process of having done wrong, not wanting to think we've done wrong, trying to fool our conscience, and when finally God, in our circumstances and through his word, begins to deal in our lives and show us we have actually sinned against him, then we say, well, it was so-and-so. Let me tell you something. In my youth, there was a number of things that I did that I know were sinful. I had friends that encouraged me to do them. But can I tell you whose fault it was that I did them? Mine. My friends didn't pin me down and make me sin, I promise you. They encouraged it, but you know who enjoyed the encouragement and loved having that as an excuse? Hmm. Here's what happens. When God begins to speak, I didn't say when we begin to be religious. Adam and Eve were already religious. But when God begins to speak, he begins to bring the truth to light. You have disobeyed me. I believe it's the book of Proverbs in speaking about the strange woman. And God speaks about her over and over. It says she has forsaken the guide of her youth. Every young lady in her youth knows she ought to be pure. The strange woman says, you know what? I don't care about that. I'm going to do what I want. She puts money as her goal. Power is her goal. Forsakes, meaning there's something in that conscience. The, the word of God, and many a young woman's had a father that was the guide of her youth, and she forsook that. And I'm just using that as an illustration, meaning there has been conscious disobedience in our lives. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's called rebellion. So, God, before we can be reconciled to him, we're going to come to verse 21. What a beautiful picture of salvation. But you can't get to verse 21 without going through verses 8 through 20, where God says, I'm going to confront you with your disobedience. You're going to have to acknowledge that you disobeyed me. And so there was rebellion, reproach, religion, reproof. And then we get into reconciliation. In that reproof, by the way, God unfolds the curse. This is the curse that comes on mankind. The ground is cursed and childbirthing is difficult and hard and coupled with sorrows. Every mother could say amen to that text of Scripture. There's animosity between men and women. You know where that comes from? Sin. Sin. Sin put animosity between a husband and a wife. May I say this? The only thing that can resolve that is grace. Not Therapy, therapy can help you survive. It can help your marriage survive. The grace of God can cure that thing, give you grace to deal with the effects of the sin curse that we live in and under in our world. And so God's leading them to reconciliation, but the path to reconciliation is one of reproof. God unfolds the curse. He says to Adam, did you do this? He said, well, my wife, she gave it to me. Did you do this? Well, the serpent deceived me. There was a grain of truth in all of that. There was. But the fact of the matter is they're still shirking responsibility. So God starts with the serpent. He said, you're going to be on your belly as a beast and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And then he says to the woman that I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent and thy seed and his seed. And there's the promise. He gives them the glimmer of hope. Her seed will bruise his head and it will bruise his heel. And that's the promise of a Savior. You know what God is saying? Even in unfolding the curse... You may be under the curse, but I'm going to provide a way of salvation through the seed of the woman. That's Jesus Christ. Then he comes to where we're at in verse 21. We see the promise of a Savior in verse 15, but then we see the picture of salvation in verse 21. The rest of the message will not probably take any longer than the introduction has, if that long. Verse 21, the Bible says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothe them. If you compare verse 21 with verse 7, you see God's way of dealing with their shame, the shame of their sin, the guilt of their sin. Nakedness is the picture of consciousness. 
Once they sinned, they were ashamed of what they'd done. Their conscience registered, we are in a bad, a bad condition. And they endeavored to cover that, to hide that, to hide from God, to blame others. None of it worked. God is still, there's still enmity. There's still animosity. But then the Bible says, Unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. What a simple verse, but what a profound statement on God's way of dealing with our sin. Had not Adam and Eve already clothed themselves? Let me put it this way. Sometimes I'll say to one of my children, let's go to town. And they've already in the clothes they've got on for the day. And I'll say, but before we go, go change your clothes. Now, you know what they are learning at that point? I do not approve of what you're wearing for, what, for going out. By telling them to change, I'm acknowledging I'm not acceptant of what you have decided to wear. They may come out of the room. We have certain rules. We homeschool. We have certain rules for how we dress at schools. So our thinking is right. We want a certain attitude while in school. So sometimes one of them comes out and I say, uh, no, go back. Or their mama says, not, go back. By offering or telling them to put something else on, what are we by default telling them? What you have provided for yourself is unacceptable. When we come to God, offering Him our good works, turn to Isaiah chapter 64 if you have your Bible. Isaiah chapter 64. Fig leaves are the equivalent of what is called all of our righteousnesses here in Isaiah 64. God says, I won't accept. I won't accept. Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 6. And Isaiah says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Again, the Bible says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he hath shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I want to give you three things about God's provision in verse 21 that is a picture it's a type it's a picture of salvation you'll have the message this morning in verse 7 the bible says they sewed themselves fig leaves together and made themselves the aprons but the bible says and unto adam also and his wife did the lord god make coats let me understand there's a difference between a coat and an apron an apron is what we would call today and i'm not going to try to paint pictures but it's what we would call loincloth it's insufficient it doesn't cover a coat means here a robe. God entirely covered them. God clothed them in such a way that they were no longer aware or, or reminded of their shame. And again, it's just picture. It's all picture of what He would ultimately do in Jesus Christ. But what I want us to see is what we produce to try to deal with the shame and guilt of our sin is insufficient. It leaves us exposed to a holy God and God says, I don't accept all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Every good thing we do in an effort to cover the wrong we've done is nothing more. Let me give you another illustration when it relates to filthy rags. Let's say um, I have a serious cut on my hand and it's getting infected. A serious cut. And so I wrap that thing in order that others don't have to see that putrefied wound as they look at me. I don't want them to be grossed out by meeting me. I don't want to, to, to put people off. So I wrap that thing in gauze day by day and then I put my gauze in a Christmas box and offer it to you for Christmas. Anybody interested? That's what filthy rags are. That which someone would wrap a wound with in order to conceal their, their wound, their mess, their, their corruption... And when we offer God, well, I'll start going to church, God. Maybe that'll make me good. I'll, I'll start doing this. I'll try to do this good thing. Perchance, I can do enough good things to cover the bad I've done. And then we offer that to God as the payment for our sins. And He says, no, all you're doing is covering. It's not healing. The wound is still there. The, 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 the rags we offer are corrupted with our own filth. The filthy, let me ask you something. What is the number one fuel behind false religion? It's pride. I am better than the next guy, therefore I should be good enough for God, should I not? If I'm better than that neighbor, and I'm better than that neighbor, then I should be good enough for God. 
How putrefying and filthy is that in the sight of God. A proud look is an abomination to the Lord. No man will stand before God and say, you know what, I did a really good job of cleaning myself up. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. You realize in Matthew 7, there's a crowd of people going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And what's he going to say? According to Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. Why would he tell someone who'd done those things for him to depart? Because it's fig leaf religion. It's saying, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and God says, I don't accept what you've done. I, I, Jim and Jeff, we, we go out and knock on doors, and I hear them use this illustration a lot. You stand before any earthly judge, and all you've ever done one time, all you ever did was steal $250 from your local bank. I mean, that's all you did. The cashier wasn't looking. You swiped it. That's all you did. And since then, you felt really guilty. And so you go out and you hand out $1 bills every Saturday from the 250 you stole. You say, you know what? Instead of keeping it, I'll just give it all away. And you did give it all away except for five that you spent on yourself. And you stand before the judge and you explain that. Well, I did do that, but judge, you don't understand. I do have the one crime on my record. I did steal from the bank. I did. But you don't understand how much I've done good since then. Oh, well, all your good cancels your, your crime. Is that the way it works? He might give you some mercy, but he's not clearing you or he's a bad judge. You've committed a crime, there's got to be a penalty paid. And the fact of the matter is, this morning, Adam and Eve, in verse 7, tried to cover themselves. They made for themselves a covering, and God says, I won't accept it. They made aprons, God made coats. I'm trying to say this morning is, what we provide for ourselves to try to appease God with us and make Him happy with us does not satisfy Him. He rejects it. And he says, no, it's not what you'll do for yourself. I'm going to provide for you. And what he provides is sufficient. Here's the life I can provide God. There came a point I was ashamed of my sinfulness and I tried doing right. But I still have a lot of sins on my conscience, even since I've tried doing right. Hope that's good enough for you. Here's what God provided for us. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know what will cover your sin? the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. We provide to God a life that is blighted with sins and transgressions. Even in our sincerest state, we sin. And God says, I won't accept. He is too holy to look on sin. God does, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Nonetheless, God says, but what I'll provide for you is someone who can completely cover you. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. for he hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. How much sin is there in God? None. So here's what I'm trying to say this morning. We provide aprons, insufficient covering for our sins. God has provided a coat. His name is Jesus Christ. So we see the sufficiency of God's provision. I want you to turn with me now. We're almost done. We've got a couple more points to give you. Hebrews chapter 10 the sufficiency of what God did in contrast to the insufficiency of what Adam and Eve did through their works. And by the way, who made these coats? Did God say to Adam and Eve, you go make you coats of skins, or did God make coats of skins? God made them. This is not what they did for God, it's what He did for them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. This is comparing what we have by grace versus what the law demanded. Then said I, verse 9, speaking of the Lord Jesus, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. That is what Jesus said. He came not to do his own will, but the will of him that sent him. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Verse 10, by the which will, that being the will of God. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and into their minds, in their minds, will I write them in their sins and iniquities, 
will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. How many more fig leaf aprons do you think Adam and Eve made after God gave them coats? None. Because what he gave them was sufficient to cover their shame. How many, how many more things do you and I have to do to appease God's wrath once we realize Jesus did it all? Look, I'm going to work for God today, but it has nothing to do with getting him to forgive me. He already did that for Christ's sake. You see, God treats me today as if I've never sinned. You know what that's called? Being justified. But he can do that because of what he provided for me, not what I've provided for him. He has provided for me a Savior. For God so loved the world that he did what? He demanded or he gave? He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The sufficiency of what God did versus the insufficiency of what Adam did. Adam and Eve made aprons. And God said, that's not sufficient. God made coats. That's not all, though. He didn't make coats of fig leaves, did he? What God provided was sufficient. It was enough, as Hebrews says, once for all, forevermore, the offering made. Jesus did say on the cross, it is finished, right? But not only do we see the sufficiency of God's provision, the Bible said God made them coats of skins. You and I both know where skins come from. Animals. I skinned an animal yesterday. Uh, one that was taken and frozen and now is being eaten for lunch today. I got news for you. To skin him, he had to die. Yeah. I'm not trying to make light. I'm trying to help, help us make a point here. Adam and Eve plucked some leaves off a tree, and what had to die? Nothing. You know what they're saying? Our sin is so light, so insignificant, you can just take a few fig leaves off a tree and cover for it. God says, no, your sin is so serious, a substitute had to die so your sin can be covered. How many of you think Adam and Eve probably knew the animal that died? I don't know if it was a sheep. I don't know if it was a deer. I don't know if it was a bull. All I know is that skins come from animals, and animals have to bleed and die to make their skins available to cover. That tells me what God provided required death and shed blood. Let me tell you this. If you can cover your sins by church attendance getting dunked underwater, sin isn't very important. Your sin did not cost you 52 Sundays a year. It cost the blood of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, which loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, my sins cost Jesus his life. As Adam and Eve were standing there unacceptable to God, aware of their sin, aware of their guilt, aware of their shame, knowing they had tried to cover and not succeeded because after they had dead in the fig leaves, God still confronted them and made them face the guilt of their sin. And then God brings them coats of skins that conscience had to recognize. God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Sin brings death. You know what? Jesus died a death. He died a death that you and I do not have to die. We'll all die physically, but may I say this? If you have eternal life this morning, physical death is nothing more than a doorway on. It's a doorway from here into glory. If you're without Christ today, you've never received the coat that God has provided you to cover your sin and shame, then physical death is a doorway to eternal death. The Bible calls it the second death where spiritually you'll be forever separated from God in the lake of fire. I don't want anything to do with that. You know what's amazing? All we have to do is accept what God has offered us. What did Adam and, do, Adam and Eve have to do to get clothed? Let God do it. It's actually, the only way you'll not be clothed is if you're like Cain and refuse what God offers. God says, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Is that hard to understand, by the way? Whosoever is not a hard word to understand. Whosoever will is not a hard concept to understand. God is saying, I'm extending eternal life, forgiveness of sins, entire pardon. I am willing to treat you as if you've never disobeyed me. But you're going to have to take what I've provided for you and not try to get me to take what you've provided for me. Adam and Eve had already offered God excuses, fig leaves, and hiding, and God rejected it all. Here, God says, no, if you want acceptance with me, if you want to be reconciled to me, I've provided something for you. It's a sufficient provision, 
but it was a sacrificial one. Hebrews 9.22, I'll read that. You don't have to turn there for time's sake because I want to conclude. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. The Bible says this, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. There is no way to have your sins put away outside of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died as that animal, whatever kind it was, had to die to provide skins to cover Adam and Eve. Even so, it's a picture of Jesus Christ who had to die so your sins can be atoned for, and the Bible word is, so we can have propitiation to be made back in right standing with God. And so then, what God provided was sufficient, coats, not aprons. It required a sacrifice, skins, not fig leaves. And it had to be supplied from God to them, not from them to God. Please don't miss that. The Bible says, verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Who clothed them? God did. May I say this? If you're going to be reconciled to God, you have to accept the clothing of righteousness He's providing you and not offer Him the clothing of righteousness we're providing Him. God says, I reject what you're doing to cover your sin. And I'm offering you this. And today, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here it is, that whosoever believeth in him. You know what it is when you believe in him? You just let God clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's salvation, friend. When you and I realize this before a holy God, I'll never be good enough. I will never be good enough to atone for my own sins. I deserve to be out of your fellowship and I deserve eternity in hell. But I realize Jesus Christ came to save me from it. You know what salvation is? It's accepting what God has already done. It's that simple. It's being willing to receive from Him what He's already done for you. That's why the Bible says in John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name. I'll state it again. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us. That was his death and shed blood. Who knew no sin. God treated Jesus as our sin, even though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Where at? In him. After Adam and Eve got their coats from God, fellowship was restored. They move on. It's after this they, they bear fruit. They have sons. The, they, they move on. My point is this. It's a picture of salvation. You'll not find any salvation in the Bible by what we do for God. Salvation meaning reconciliation to God. Second Corinthians 5, by the way, the entire context is being reconciled to God. How many of us know God is willing to forgive us? You know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is treating an offender as if they've never sinned. How do we have that with God? I'll give you a couple more verses. We'll be done this morning. Just a few more verses. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. And by the way, the forgiveness you receive is an eternal forgiveness. There is a need after we are children of God to maintain fellowship with God, but pardon is, as the Bible says, once for all. It's not as though God says, I'll give you eternal life, but it's not really eternal. That makes sense. Eternal means eternal. Everlasting means everlasting. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's God imparting to us that which we do not deserve or have not earned. The glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. I trust God to clothe me in the righteousness of Christ and make me acceptable in his sight. I trust him. I'll let him do the saving. And it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he hath shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. One final verse, Romans, set of verses 3, 23 through 25. The Bible says this, uh, verse 
22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation that is a full and complete atonement covering for our sins, to put our sins away so that we are no longer viewed as an enemy of God, but a son and a friend, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth uh, in Jesus, which believeth in Jesus. My point, and God's point this morning is this. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They had reproach because of their rebellion. They created a religion. They tried to cover and conceal. It didn't work. There was reproof. But God provided reconciliation, not by saying, look here, and we'll be done. He didn't say, go back and try the fig leaf thing again. Try to do a better job next time. He said, I'll do it for you. And they simply let God make them righteous. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That works on old prideful sin nature that says, but I want God to accept me for what I've done. It will never happen, lest any man should boast. You know what kind of person there will not be in heaven? A boaster. No person will be in heaven telling others what they did to get themselves there. The song in heaven is this, Revelation 4.11, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. No one in heaven is going to say, well... You can see I was a good enough citizen to make it. No, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every soul in heaven is going to say, thank God for what he did for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Aren't you glad God's way of salvation is crystal clear? I'm going to ask something this morning. Does God in the 21st century in the United States of America still desirous to reconcile people to him? Today, Jesus Christ is ready to be placed upon you what do you have to do? You're going to have to walk through that, re- that reproof process and say, God's rejection of me is just. I did disobey him, and it's justified. But he says, that's called repentance. God's rejection of me is justified. But if he's willing to forgive me, I'll accept the forgiveness he's provided in the person of Jesus Christ.